0: This is Penny Johnson, and you're listening to From Stage to Page, an audiobook podcast devoted to the forgotten stories and memoirs of female performing artists from the late 19th and early 20th centuries. In this episode, we continue with Geraldine Farr, The Story of an American Singer, written by Geraldine Farr and published in 1916 by Houghton Mifflin Company. CHAPTER Six, PARIS The time was now rapidly approaching, which was to be the turning point of my career, a trip to Europe. Up to this time I had accomplished practically all that I could hope for in America— I had studied under the best teachers in Boston and in New York. I knew much of the grand opera repertoire. I had sung in concerts and recitals. I had just turned seventeen. The necessary training for a grand opera career was then impossible in America, and tradition decreed that foreign singers with a foreign reputation should be engaged for grand operas holy of holies the shining exception being our own American Nordica then in her prime. I decided that Paris must be the next stepping stone. But how? To study in Paris meant a great deal of money, and my father's business in Melrose, while prosperous enough for our home needs, could not meet the strain of an expensive stay abroad. It was an understood thing that when I did go, my father and mother should accompany me. The financial problem, however, seemed almost an insurmountable one. But once more the element of luck, or fate, intervened just at the most critical moment. At one of the receptions given by Miss Thursby at her home in Gramercy Park, I had met a Mrs. Kimball of Boston she heard me sing and was interested in the story of my ambition to study abroad i told her however that although my father was seriously considering selling his business in melrose we feared the proceeds would be insufficient for the course of study that seemed necessary i have a friend in boston said mrs kimball who is interested in music and perhaps she would arrange something if you sang for her Will you come to Boston and meet her? Would I? The prospect was too alluring. A very few days afterward I had returned to Boston with my mother in response to a letter making an appointment for me to meet Mrs. Bertram Webb. Mrs. Webb was the widow of a former resident of Salem. She was then stopping at her beautiful home in Boston, and I sang for her. I was fortunate enough to enlist her immediate sympathy and interest, and, as I was a minor, the necessary business formalities were concluded by my parents in my behalf. My father sold his store in Melrose, and realized a sum sufficient to reduce materially the amount of the first loan we had from Mrs. Webb. This sum, according to the terms of a written contract drawn up by Mrs. Webb's lawyer and duly signed by my father and mother as my legal guardians, was to be an indefinite amount, advanced as required, and to be repaid at an indefinite date when my voice should be a source of steady income. The only actual security given was that my life was insured in Mrs. Webb's favor, so that in case of my death, she would be fully compensated for the risk and loss she might sustain. I am happy and proud to state that, although Mrs. Webb generously advanced, all told, a sum approximating $30,000 during the first few years of my studies in Europe, every dollar of it was repaid within two years after my return to America. Upon my mother's capable shoulders fell the difficult, and not always thankful, task of financing and planning for our adventurous expeditions. Thus completely shielded from money worries and material vexations, I abandoned myself to the glory of dreams. I was ready to slave in passionate devotion and enthusiasm to further the career that meant my life, to conquer in song and so unafraid and happy with the heart of youth i set forth to the old world of my dreams and hopes we sailed from boston late in september 1899 on the old leyland liner armenian she was a cattle boat the passengers were merely incidental the beef was vital it rained the day we sailed and it rained the day we arrived in Liverpool. London, where I spent a brief ten days, remains only a vague memory of fog and depression. I was happy to leave it behind and continue toward the wonder city of my dreams, Paris. Who can ever forget the first intoxicating impression of this queen of cities? The channel trip, the bustle of arrival at Boulogne, the fussy little foreign train tugging us unwillingly over the lovely meadows, all I retain of that is a blur. But it seems like yesterday that the spruce little conductor poked his merry face into the compartment and gurgled joyfully, Every nerve in my body tingles now when I recall the excitement of it all. We drove first to a small family hotel, which had been recommended by some of our fellow passengers on the Armenian. I at once took charge of the party and, in a halting harangue in French, told the landlady what rooms we wanted and how much we wished to pay. "'If you will only tell me in English,' said the landlady helplessly, speaking my native tongue perfectly, "'I can understand you better.' After this crushing rebuke to my French, I let my mother arrange all details. We remained but a few days here, only until we could install ourselves in an apartment in the Latin Quarter, very near the lovely gardens of the Luxembourg and close to the omnibus stations. It cost then three sous to ride on top of a bus, l'Imperial, as it is called, and six sous to ride inside. By constant patronage of l'imperial during pleasant weather, it was possible to lay aside enough for a drive Sunday in the bois. In those days there was no taximeter system to disconcert, and if one found an amiable cochet, and there have been many, bless them, it was quite within the reach of the modest purse of a grand opera aspirant, thus to join the gay throng of smart Parisian turnouts. The first thing of importance was to search for a good teacher. While I had letters to various well-known instructors, I never used them, preferring to be judged on my merits. At last, one day, I called upon Trabadello, the Spaniard, who had numbered among his pupils Sybil Sanderson and Emma Ames. I studied with Trabadello from October 1899 until the spring of 1900. And, to dispose of unauthorized assertions, I may add that Trabadello is the only vocal teacher I had in Paris. I also had a course of mise-en-scene, or preparation for the stage, with an excellent teacher, Madame Martini, an artist of repute and an excellent instructor in the traditional sense of the word. For instance, Madame would say... "'After ten bars, lift the right hand. two more, then point it at the villain. "'Walk slowly toward the hero, "'raise your eyes at the twentieth bar toward heaven, "'and conclude your aria with a sweeping gesture of denial, "'sinking gently to the floor.'" Alas, my progress was not brilliant along such lines. I could not study grimaces in the mirror, I could not walk hours following a silly chalk line, and I refused to repeat one gesture a hundred times at the same phrase or bar of music. Discussion and argument were very frequent, also tears. Nevertheless, I did learn much from so well-grounded a teacher, and often have occasion to think pleasantly of her first lessons with my rather difficult nature. In the spring, I heard that Nordica was in Paris with her husband, Mr. Zoltan Durma. I was in a fever of anxiety to see her, and have her hear me sing since studying abroad, but how could I find her? By chance, I heard that she drove daily in the bois, so I persuaded a friend, who had a very elegant equipage, to invite me of an afternoon to drive, so that by some happy chance I might speak to Nordica. Around my neck I wore a talisman which I had worn for many years, a little silver locket for which I had paid two dollars in Melrose when I was a schoolgirl. At that time my cash allowance for pin money was twenty five cents a week. One day I saw this locket in a jewelry store window. I said nothing, but saved enough to buy the simple trinket, which I wore as a talisman, with Nordica's picture in it. Naturally, therefore, I wore this in the hope that it would bring me luck in my search for her, and soon to my joy I saw the famous singer approaching in her open carriage with Mr. Derma. Of course she did not recognize me, but as she drove by I stood up and threw the precious locket into her lap to attract her attention. Mr. Derma picked it up, and to Nordica's amazement she recognized her own picture. While her carriage turned around, I waited on the path, and soon my idol was actually allowing me to talk with her and renewing once more the interest she had shown while I was in New York. She invited me to come and sing for her in her beautiful home in the Bois, and when we parted, she handed back my precious talisman. "'Don't throw it away again,' she said with a smile. "'But it has brought me such good luck.' I replied happily. Next day, and many times thereafter, I visited Madame Nordica, and both she and Mr. Derma were genuinely interested in my vocal welfare. The question of my future was discussed, and contrary to the idea I had of going to Italy and following the usual procedure of enlisting in a provincial theatre there for experience— Mr. Dömer suggested my studying with a Russian-Italian, Graziani, in Berlin, whose book upon vocal study he had recently received and found unusual and beneficial. I was not at all keen upon abandoning Italy for Germany, but Madame Nordica's advice was paramount, and, armed with some nice letters from her to various friends whom she had learned to know during her triumphs in Bayreuth, we made plans to break up our Paris home. You've been listening to From Stage to Page, an audiobook podcast devoted to the forgotten stories and memoirs of female performing artists from the late 19th and early 20th centuries. If you like what you hear and want to support my creative endeavors, then simply go to kofi.com/pennyjohnson. pennyjohnson.com and you can buy me a lemonade that's k o f i dot com slash penny Johnson thanks for your support.